So welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson, the uh, Bradley Professor of Government and the Press here at the Kennedy School, uh, Acting Director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, this evening marks the 26th annual Theodore H. White Lecture and the 11th anniversary of the David Nyan Prize for Political Journalism. <clears throat> now, as many of you know, the Shorenstein Center was founded as a memorial to Joan Shorenstein Barone, a distinguished television journalist who died at a young age of breast cancer. Her father, Walter Shorenstein, endowed the center. Walter was the consummate citizen. His business was real estate, but his passion was prodding America to live up to its promise as an equal society. That same passion drove the work of the two journalists upon whom this night is based, Theodore H. White and David Nyan. David was a Shorenstein Center Fellow. I loved David Nyan. Everyone at the Center did. How could you not? He had a charm and a warmth that filled every room he entered. David was a Harvard grad, a Harvard football player at that, but he was more Irish than Harvard. His good friend, Marty Nolan, himself a former Shorenstein Center Fellow, worked with David at the Globe for five years before David mentioned his Harvard connection. All the more amazing in that the newsroom wasn't the only place where these two Irishmen plied each other with stories. David was a reporter and then a columnist at the Boston Globe. He grew up in Whiskey Point, the Irish working class neighborhood of Brookline. He lived his roots, becoming the Globe's voice for the little guy. As David wrote in his last column upon retiring in 2001, the thing I'll miss most is the chance to shine a little flashlight in a dark corner where a wrong has been done to the powerless. In his memory, the Nyan family and David's many friends and admirers endowed the David Nyan Prize for Political Journalism. David's wife, Olivia, is here with us tonight, as are several other members of the Nyan family. I'd like them to please stand. This year's David Nyan Prize is awarded to Gary Young. If there is a current version of David, Gary is it. Gary's parents moved to England from Barbados, settling in a working class town on the edge of London. Gary found his way into a college journalism program thanks to a scholarship from the Guardian newspaper. Today, he works for that paper as editor at large and writes a monthly column for the nation. He's also a writer of books. And yes, it's the powerless on whose behalf he writes. Listen to his book titles. Who are we? Stranger in a strange land. No place like home. Three times, Gary Young has been named best newspaper journalist by Britain's Ethnic Minority Media Awards. For most of the past decade, Gary reported from the United States. In a final dispatch before returning to London in July, he wrote about the unknown American black male that would be the next victim of a mindless police shooting. He has no idea, wrote Gary, that his days are numbered. But we do know with gruesome certainty that his number will come up. We know this because it's statistically inevitable and has historical precedent. We know this because we've seen it happen again and again. We know this because this is not just how America works, this is how America was built. It's my honor to introduce this year's winner of the David Nyan Prize for Political Journalism, Gary Young. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, 
My, my remarks will be brief, not least because um, we were told that there are tax implications if they are long. Um, I'm extremely honored to uh, be given uh, this award. And reading through um, David's columns uh, on the way here, um, since I was uh, told I would get the award, it reminded me of these evenings that um, I spent in Russia. I actually, before I studied journalism, I studied French and Russian, and I lived in Russia for six months. It was shortly before Gorbachev left. And every evening at about 8.30, 8.45, there would be this flurry of activity where the woman um, in whose home I was staying would be getting the dog ready to uh, take the dog for a walk. And I wondered why there was such anxiety about moving so fast. And um, one night when it was warmer, I went out with her and realized that everybody, or everybody who had a dog, was out at nine. And I said, you know, what is this? And she said, this is what, the, what we call sabachi chas. This is the dog hour. And it's the time when the news is on, the state news. And we don't believe the news, and we don't like the news, and so this is the time that we choose to walk our dog. <laughs> and I thought about this when reading David's uh, columns, because there are some forms of journalism where you just want to take your dog for a walk. <laughs> and then there are others when you think, just, just chill out for a minute, Rover, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. And David was clearly one of the uh, latter. And the reason being that he um, would take things quite often that people had accepted and say, this is unacceptable. This is not right. And the fact that you've accepted it is not unacceptable, is, is unacceptable. And uh, recently when um, finishing a book I've just done about all the children who were shot dead in one day in America. Seven children every day on average are shot dead in America. So I picked a day and then found out who these kids were. Most of these kids got little more than a paragraph in the paper. And when you ask the journalist, why um, did you think to call or whatever, they would say it was not really unexpected that a child in that area might get shot. It was not news as such. And of course, most of these kids were poor and black. And that made me think about the journalistic dictum that when uh, a man uh, bites a dog, it's news. But when a dog bites a man, it's not news. But that what David did, and I think the tradition in which this prize is given, is saying sometimes, why do these dogs keep biting people? Who owns these dogs? How do we stop these dogs biting people? That this is not normal to live in a world where so many people can be so cruelly uh, bitten. Um, I want to expand on the, the um, uh, quote that uh, Thomas uh, read. Because David, he said, the thing I miss most in his last column is the chance to shine a flashlight on a dark corner where a wrong was done to a powerless person, where a scarred politician maybe deserved a better fate, when the process went awry and the mob needed to be calmed down and herded in another direction. And so I'm extremely grateful and extremely proud to be given this award in that tradition and, uh, uh, and in that mold. So thank you very much. Theodore H. White grew up in a Boston family that didn't have much money. But young Teddy was smart, and he was bookish. He described himself as a meatball. His Harvard scholarship to study Chinese history launched him on a distinguished career as a foreign correspondent. His dispatches out of China in World War II were among the best reporting from any front. 
but it was a captivating book on the 1960 Kennedy-Nixon campaign that made Teddy White famous. No writer before had taken us inside the workings of a presidential campaign. In its first year of publication, The Making of the President, 1960, sold more than two million copies. It was followed by best-selling books of the 1964, 68, and 72 campaigns, but by then, White was turning against his own storyline. He had not anticipated that his behind-the-scenes portrayals would become a reporting obsession. White was sitting in George McGovern's hotel room one day during the 1972 campaign and was appalled by what he observed. McGovern said White was like a fish in a goldfish bowl. There were three different network crews at different times. The still photographers kept coming in, groups of five at a time. I invented this method of reporting and I now sincerely regret it. White set out the 76 campaign, but returned in 1980 to write a different kind of book. It warned of the looming dangers of big money, big media, unbridled ambition, excessive partisanship, disaffected voters. That book, America in Search of Itself, stands today as a portent of what our political campaigns have become. This year's Teddy White lecturer is Jill Lepore. She is Harvard's David Woods Kemperer 41 Professor of American History and staff writer at The New Yorker. Jill Lepore is the recipient of many honors and awards, including election to the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, honorary degrees from Bowdoin, Colgate, and Tufts, president of the Society of American Historians. Remarkably, Jill didn't aspire to be a historian. She doesn't hold a degree of any kind in history. She was an English major at Tufts, and her PhD program at Yale was American Studies. From early on, her aim was to be a writer. History became the outlet. Her first book, The Name of War, won the Bancroft Prize. It tells how New England's white settlers eradicated the Indian chief known as King Philip and the tribes he led. The Indians that were captured were sold into slavery, and King Philip was beheaded. For the next 20 years, his spiked head was on public display in Plymouth Colony. That first book signaled the purpose of Joe Lepore's writing, to use history to remind us of things that we, as a people, find it convenient to forget. Philip's war doesn't accord with that blissful story we tell each other on Thanksgiving about New England's early settlers. Our national narrative is also at odds with New York Burning, a book that won the Annisfield Wolf Award. No witches were burned at the stake in Salem, but 13 black men were burned alive in 1741, not in the sordid South, but in the area's most diverse locale, New York City. Jill Lepore is also not shy about challenging her discipline's cherished beliefs. Most academic historians disdain biography. Jill embraces it as a way to tell bigger stories. One such book, published in 2013, centers on the life of Ben Franklin's younger sister, Jane. Gender sent them on different paths. Ben Franklin took the opportunities available to smart, ambitious men, Jane Franklin never had a chance. She married young and badly, bore 12 children, only one of whom outlived her, and spent most of her life in poverty. Although Ben and Jane Franklin shared a lengthy correspondence, he never saw fit in his memoir to mention her even once. Jill's book on Jane Franklin, titled Book of Ages, was named Time Magazine's best nonfiction book of the year and was a finalist for the 2013 National Book Award. Jill has been contributing to The New Yorker since 2005. In her article, she frequently draws from history to expose superficial thinking. During the 2009 swine flu scare, reporters repeatedly but inaccurately compared it to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. The media frenzy sparked near panic among some Americans. As Jill wrote in a New Yorker piece, it was hardly the first such frenzy. 
Reporters have done it many times, including the now all but forgotten parrot flu scare of 1930. Joe Lepore's lecture tonight is titled The Press and the Polls. Now, over the course of my career, I've written extensively on the press, conducted scores of opinion polls, and during the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to learn from history why so much of my work was off the mark. <laughs> Professor Lepore, the lectern is yours, a warm welcome from the Shorenstein Center. Thanks so much for that very kind introduction. It's a tremendous honor to be here. And I'm just so proud to be a part of an evening that celebrates David Nyan and Theodore White and the great Gary Young. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be here, if a little nervous about speaking about the problems with polls. There's a way in which, though, I think, um, I just want to make sure if the slides are up there. Okay. Um, I, this is a suitable topic for me to discuss because one of the things I want to say about public opinion polls is that they are the child of a very bad marriage between academics and journalists. And so am I. So, <laughs> so I feel uniquely suited to take responsibility for the many problems with polls as someone who has one foot in the academy and another in the world of the press. American politics is adrift in a sea of polls. This year, that sea is deeper than ever before and darker. Between the late 1990s and the 2012 presidential election, 1,200 polling organizations conducted nearly 37,000 polls by making more than 3 billion phone calls. Did anyone take a poll since 1999? Anyone here? OK. The overwhelming majority of Americans refused to speak to pollsters. When modern public opinion polling began in the 1930s, the response rate, which is the percentage of the number of people who answer a survey as a percentage of those who are asked, the response rate in the 1930s was well above 90. By the 1980s, that rate had fallen to 60. And pollsters began to panic because they believed it would be impossible to continue their work if the rate fell below 30. It has since sunk to the single digits. A not uncommon response rate for an American public opinion poll is three. Meanwhile, polls are wielding greater influence over American elections than ever before, which is the paradox of this story. In May, Fox News announced that in order to participate in its first primetime debate, Republican candidates would have to place in the top 10 of an average of the five most recent national polls. Where the candidates would stand on the debate stage would also be determined by their polling numbers. Many reputable pollsters found this decision unsupportable. That includes Pew, which has not yet begun pre-election polling, Gallup, which recently announced that it doesn't intend to conduct pre-election polls, and Public Opinion Strategies, the leading Republican polling organization, which with, de with its Democratic counterpart, Heart Research Associates, conducts the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Even if more people were willing to answer the pollsters when they called, polling would still be teetering on the edge of disaster. More than 40% of American adults no longer have landlines, and the 1991 Telephone Consumer Protection Act bans auto dialing to cell phones. This spring, Gallup agreed to a $12 million settlement in a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of everyone in the United States who between 2009 and 2013 received an unbidden cell phone call seeking an opinion about politics. Gallup denies any wrongdoing. In June, the FCC issued a ruling reaffirming and strengthening the prohibition on random dialing to cell phones. And during congressional hearings, Greg Walden, a Republican from Oregon who's chair of the House Subcommittee on Communications and Technology, asked FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler if the ruling meant that pollsters would go the way of blacksmiths. Wheeler shrugged. Well, he said, they have been, right? Despite much hype, internet pollsters have not replaced telephone pollsters. Using methods designed for knocking on doors to measure public opinion on the internet is like trying to shoe a horse with your operating system. Internet pollsters can't call you, they have to wait for you to come to them, which is a problem not least because not everyone uses the internet. And at the moment, the people who do and who complete online surveys are younger and leftier than the people who don't, while people who have landlines still and who answer the phone are older and more conservative. 
Some pollsters both here and around the world rely on a mix of telephone and internet polling for that reason. But the trick is in figuring out just the right mix, and so far, this does not seem to be working. In Israel this March, polls failed to pre predict Netanyahu's victory. In May, in the UK, where the telephone survey response rate is often below two, every major national poll failed to forecast the conservative party's win. Nor is data science the answer. Data science firms collect a massive amount of information about you and people like you and use it to build predictive models and run simulations in order to determine what issues you care about, what kind of candidate you'd give money to or have given money to, and if you're likely to turn out on election day, how you'll vote. Data science is promising in all kinds of ways and it's certainly dazzling, but it can't solve the biggest problem with public opinion polling because that problem is neither methodological nor technological. It is, in fact, political. Pollsters rose to prominence in the United States by claiming that measuring public opinion is good for democracy. But what if it's bad? Consider Donald Trump. <laughs> so that wasn't meant to be laughing. My argument is not actually about Trump. He's actually just a good illustration of the problems that I'd like to raise and to discuss. I'm really looking forward to the Q&A. I am who I am, Trump said, when his campaign began. And what he meant by that was this. I don't have a pollster. The word pollster, when it was coined, was meant as a slur. It's, it's an analog to huckster. Um, and Trump uses it that way. He doesn't have a pollster. Other candidates have pollsters, but Trump has none, he says, because no one tells me what to say. A poll used to mean the top of your head, the very top of your head. Ophelia says of Polonius, his beard is as white as snow, all flaxen was his poll. When voting involved assembling, it used to be before the rise of the paper ballot, all, pay, all voting was done with your body or with your voice. So people would assemble in the town common here, say in the Cambridge common, all in favor of Smith go to the east side of the common, all in favor of Jones go to the right side of the common. So those, you, the person who was taking the vote would have to count the polls. You'd just go around and count the tops of the people's heads on one side of the room and the other side of the room. One side of town hall, one side of the common. You'd count the polls. That's, so the word poll eventually came to mean the place where you would go to vote. That would be, would be called going to the polls. But more and more, by the 19th century, when paper voting came to replace viva voce voting, uh, ballots were, were printed in newspapers. You'd cut one out and you'd bring it with you to the polling place, which was called the polling place because it was where you had your head counted, but now no longer was your head counted, but your ballot was counted. You got it out of the newspaper. And when the secret ballot uh, was introduced, beginning here in Massachusetts in the 1880s and across the country by 1896, governments began supplying the ballots. Now, now newspapers continued to print ballots and you'd cut them out of the newspaper and send them back to the newspaper so that the newspaper could conduct a straw poll. It was like throwing a straw up into the air and, and watching which way the wind blew it. That's what, why it's called a straw poll. Um, so polls came to be called not, a poll came to be not just the place where you would go to vote, the act of voting itself, but the prediction of a vote, a straw, a straw poll. And political parties, of course, conducted straw polls too in the very days and weeks before the election. That's one of the ways that the great party machine of the 19th century worked, was through the conducting of straw polls. This August, to call the field for the first GOP debate, Fox News used polls that were conducted more than 460 days before the election. The question ordinarily takes the form of, if the election were held tomorrow, but of course the circumstances under which the election for the next US president would actually be held tomorrow involve essentially Armageddon. Trump won, all flaxen was his poll. <laughs> I'm glad everybody remembered the Shakespeare line. That's like the one memorable line from my talk. I'll just... <clears throat> A century ago, newspapers that wanted to predict the outcome of a presidential election, that is a national election, all these straw polls were local. They're really, they're precinct based, right? This precinct captains are conducting straw polls. They're, they're sending reports back to party headquarters. But if a newspaper wanted to make a prediction for a national election, for a presidential election, they needed to collaborate. They needed to work with a group of other newspapers. In 1908, the New York Herald, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Chicago Record Herald, and the St. Louis Republic tallied their straws together. 
Hearst's newspapers did the same thing. Hearst's papers were uniquely suited to conduct these kinds of polls, national polls. But the pred best predictions were made by a national magazine, the Literary Digest, beginning in 19, 1916. And you can see the play on newspapers as the source for all polling here in this cover from the Literary Digest. The Literary Digest regularly miscalculated the popular vote. But for a long time, it got the Electoral College winner right. What the Literary Digest did was just send out postcards and ask people to return them, and you'd get a, a free issue of the magazine. It was a way to drive subscription up, but you could, you could contact large numbers of Americans with your free magazine. By 1932, the mailing list for the Literary Digest straw poll had grown to 20 million Americans. They got most of these names from telephone directories and from automobile registration files, the easiest way to get lists of Americans. George Gallup was one of the few people who understood that the digest, however successful it had been, the worse the depression became, the more risky was the method used by the literary digest because it risked underestimating democratic votes because its sample, while very big, more than 20 million, was not very representative. People who supported FDR were much less likely than the rest of the population to own a telephone or a car. In realizing the flaws with the literary digest methods, George Gallup was borrowing from the insights of social science. Social scientists had first begun conducting surveys in the 1890s. The survey, the social survey, is a hallmark of progressive era social reform, the kind of raising of, of, of the collecting of vital statistics and other measures of behaviors and of status among Americans for the sake of reforming the government and providing services. In the 1930s, social scientists began using a shortcut that relied on statistical science. They, instead of canvassing a very large number of people to do a social survey, essentially doing a form of a census, they surveyed a tiny but representative sample. Gallup is really important to this story because Gallup always wanted to be a journalist. He went to college to become a newspaper editor, and when he went to the University of Iowa, they did not yet have a journalism department. So he majored in psychology, which was a brand new field, applied psychology in the 1920s. Um, and after graduating in 1923, he stayed on and earned a PhD in applied psychology. But all he ever really wanted to do was be, to, was to bring the insights of social sciences, of the social sciences, to the work of journalism. His, his 1928 dissertation, which is fascinating reading and I highly recommend it, is called An Objective Method for Determining Reader Interest in the Content of a Newspaper. And you, if you would like, you are welcome to blame Gallup for the most emailed list and every other metric that your newspaper uses to, <laughs> to track reader interest because this is what Gallup proposed in 1928. He said that there had been a time when the newspaper had an obligation to inform the people, to educate the people about politics and about civics and about the political system. But with the rise of the public school system over the course of the 19th century, which is very slow and gradual development, the newspaper no longer had that obligation for civic education and instead ought to be entertaining. And therefore, the duty of a newspaper editor was to decide which were the parts of the paper that people most enjoyed and were most likely to read. And so he would watch people read the paper and he would keep very careful track and report his findings to newspaper editors so that they could throw out all the columns that no one liked to read, however important and edu educational they might have been, and keep printing uh, the parts that people read. In 1932, when Gallup was a professor of journalism at Northwestern, his mother-in-law ran for Secretary of State of Iowa. And to understand her chances, Gallup decided to use the methods of, of, of psychology, to apply psychology to politics. Then he moved to New York and began an advertising agency and ran, uh, started an organization called the Editor's Research Bureau, where he sold his services to newspapers, this service about how to tell which part of your paper you could just throw out because however valuable it was, no one was reading it anymore. He thought of this work as a new form of journalism, and he decided it ought, though, to sound academic, too, that he could use the methods of applied psychology to measure not only reader interest, but public opinion. And in 1935, he founded in Princeton the American Institute of Public Opinion. It was funded by 500 newspapers. It was, as Gallup always insisted, and it still remains today, a form of journalism. In 1936, in the pages of the New York Herald Tribune, Gallup predicted that the Literary Digest would forecast that Al Landon would defeat FDR in a landslide and that the Digest would be wrong. He knew this because he understood the flaws of the sample that the Literary Digest was using. He was right on both counts, and this really launched Gallup's career. This, though, was only the beginning. I had the idea of polling on every major issue, he explained. He began insisting that the measurement of public opinion was essential to democracy. Elections come only every two years, Gallup pointed out, but we need to know the will of the people at all times. This was part of the fight against fascism, the beefing up of democracy with the tools of social science. 
He claimed that his work had rescued American politics from the political machine and restored it to the American pastoral, the New England town meeting, that we were back again in the Cambridge Common, Jones on Smith's, one side Smith on the other, that we could have this instant visible representation of public opinion. Elmo Roper, another early pollster, called the public opinion survey the greatest contribution to democracy since the introduction of the secret ballot. Gallup's early method was known as quota sampling. He figured out what portion of the population was white or black or old or young, male or female, and then he sent out his interviewers door to door to fill their quotas to essentially constitute a mini electorate. But as scholars have shown since, what Gallup did was in fact produce, reproduce all the flaws of American democracy. In the 1930s and 1940s, for instance, Blacks constituted 10% of the population, but made up less than 2% of Gallup's survey respondents because he knew that in the South they were prevented from voting. As Sarah Igo has pointed out, instead of functioning as a tool for democracy, public opinion polls were deliberately modeled upon and compounded democracy's flaws. Ever since Gallup, it's become confusing to talk about polls because two kinds of things have come to be called polls. Some measure opinions and others forecast elections. It's not a bad idea to call those polls that measure opinions surveys and use the word polls only to refer to those that forecast elections. Gallup made that distinction himself. And he, when he started out, he didn't believe using a survey to forecast an election was a useful thing to do. It wasn't a civic-minded or a public good. It wasn't a civic-minded activity or a public good. Uh, while such forecasts provide an interesting activity, they probably serve no great social purpose, he wrote. Then why do it? Gallup began conducting polls only in order to prove the accuracy of his surveys, which is a product that he was selling, because there was no other way to demonstrate whether his measurement of the public's opinion on anything was accurate. The polls themselves, themselves he thought, were actually pointless. In the decades since, polls have come to rule American politics. Donald Trump doesn't have a campaign pollster, but while he was leading them anyway, his campaign loved polls. Polls admitted Trump to the first GOP debate, and polls handed him a victory. Donald J. Trump dominates Time, po time Poll, the, time the Trump campaign posted on its website following the August debate, linking to a story in which Time reported that 47 respondents said that Trump had won. Time's poll, though, was conducted by PlayBuzz.com, a viral content provider that embeds playful formats onto websites to increase traffic. Playbuzz had indeed collected more than 70,000 votes from visitors to Time web, Time's website in its instant poll. Time posted this warning, the results of this poll are not scientific, but because most polls don't come with warnings, reporters and news organizations have tried very hard and very responsibly to educate readers about polling methods in this world of uh, proliferation of polls and, and, and the diversification of the kinds of polls. The day after the first debate, Slate published a column called, Did Trump Actually Win the Debate? How to Understand All Those Instant Polls That Say Yes? We might think this is a very responsible act of journalism, but it didn't prevent Slate that same day from, produce, from producing the results of its own instant poll conducted by an organization just like PlayBuzz. The statistician Nate Silver began explaining polls to the public in 2008 on uh, the, this column that the Times published as the 538 and now has its own website. Silver does a really important piece of work by aggregating polls and giving greater, giving greater weight to those that are more reliable in order to make better predictions. It's an incredibly helpful piece of work that Silver and people who are doing that kind of work are doing, but I think it's fair to say it's a patch, not a fix. The distinction between one kind of poll and another is essential, but it is also very often exaggerated. Polls do drive polls. This is empirically demonstrated. Good polls drive polls and bad polls drive polls. And when bad polls drive good polls, they're not so good anymore. If polls play such a role in American politics, why don't we regulate them? Laws govern who can run for office and how. There are laws about who can vote and where and when. Other countries have laws regulating the disclosure requirements of pollsters. Seven constitutional amendments and countless Supreme Court cases concern voting, but in the United States, polls are largely free from government regulation or even scrutiny. Interestingly, though, this wasn't always the case. In the 1930s and 40s, motions were regularly introduced into Congress calling for an investigation of the influence of public opinion on the political process. These polls are a racket and their methods should be exposed to the public, a Democratic member of the House wrote in 1939, which is the year that Time first called Gallup a pollster. 
One concern was that polls were jury-rigged. Gallup was called before Congress in 1944 to explain how he had underestimated Democratic support in two out of every three states. He said that anticipating a low turnout, he had taken two points off the projected vote for FDR. Another concern, a deeper concern, was that polls, as one congressman put it, are in contradiction to representative government. Pollsters appeared to believe that the United States is or ought to be a direct democracy. It is not and ought not. At the same time, social scientists began criticizing pollsters too. In 1947, in an address to the American Sociological Association, Herbert Bloomer argued that public opinion does not exist absent its measurement. Pollsters proceed from the assumption that public opinion can be meaningfully understood as an aggregation of individual opinions, each given equal weight, but Bloomer demonstrated that assumption to be preposterous. This got Gallup's backup, and in 1948, the week before Election Day, he said, we have never claimed infallibility, but next Tuesday, the whole world will be able to see, down to the last percentage point, how good we are. He, of course, predicted that Dewey would beat Truman. The press believed him, and they were both proven entirely wrong. Gallup liked to say that pollsters take the pulse of democracy. E.B. White wrote a column for The New Yorker the week after this, the election of 1948. Although you can take a nation's pulse, White observed, you can't be sure that the nation hasn't just run up a flight of stairs. <laughs> In the wake of polling's most notorious failure, the political scientist Lindsay Rogers, himself a former journalist, published a broadside called The Pollsters. Rogers had drafted the book before the election debacle, and he actually felt then bad about it, publishing the book, which is an indictment of the polling industry. Um, and he also was worried that he'd be misunderstood because his concern had very little to do with miscalculation. Where Bloomer had argued that polling rests on a misapplication of social science, Rogers argued that it rests on a misapplication, misunderstanding of American democracy. Even if public opinion could be measured without manufacturing it, which Rogers very much doubted, he believed that legislators using polls to inform their votes would be inconsistent with their constitutional duty. The United States has a representative government for many reasons, but among them is that it is designed to protect the rights of minorities against the tyranny of majority. The pollsters has dismissed as irrelevant the kind of political society in which we live and which we as citizens should endeavor to strengthen, Rogers wrote. He believed polls are a majoritarian monstrosity. These alarms went unheeded, and then the most important turning point in the history of the polling industry in the United States came. Because eight days after Truman beat Dewey, the Social Science Research Council launched an investigation into the polling industry. The work took many weeks, it involved many preeminent social scientists, and they decided in the end that if the polling industry were to fail, that the social science fields would fail too. They would lose their foundation funding and they would lose their federal government funding, which was a relatively new thing. Because if the sample survey method were revealed to be problematic, social science could not survive that scandal. The report that the Social Science Research Council then produced was a very ardent defense of the sample survey method. It formed this sort of unbreakable alliance between the academy and journalists who conduct polls that has never really quite been severed since. In 1952, Eisenhower unexpectedly defeated Truman and Edward R. Morrow relished in the troubles, the continued troubles of pollsters. Yesterday, the people surprised the pollsters, the prophets, and many politicians. They are mysterious, and their motives are not to be measured by mechanical means, Morrow said. But politicians don't want people to be mysterious. And soon, not only newspapers, but political candidates and office holders, including presidents, began hiring pollsters. In 1972, Congress debated a Truth in Polling Act. It was defeated. And despite growing evidence of the problems known as non-opinion, forced opinion, and exclusion bias, Journalists in the 1970s only relied on Gallup-style polling more, not less, and they began to, to conduct their own polls. In 1973, in precision journalism, Philip Meyer urged reporters to conduct their own surveys. If your newspaper has a data processing department, then it has key punch machines and people to operate them. Two years later, the New York Times and CBS released their first joint poll, and it's been off to the races ever since. Notwithstanding the ongoing concerns raised by critics who point out again and again, as has Gallup's former managing editor, David Moore, that media-run polls give us distorted readings of the electoral climate, manufacture a false public consensus on policy issues, and in the process, undermine American democracy. Polls don't take the pulse of democracy. They raise it. 
If public opinion polling is the child of a strained marriage between the press and the academy, data science is the child of an even worse marriage between the academy and Silicon Valley. The term data science was coined in 1960, one year after the DNC hired Simulmatics Corporation, a company founded by a political science, scientist from MIT to provide strategic analysis in advance of the upcoming presidential election. This MIT scientist and his team went to Ro the Elmo Roper uh, polling organization and acquired all of their punch cards from all the public opinion surveys and uh, polls that they had conducted in the 1950s and fed them into a univac. They came up with, <clears throat> they sorted voters into 480 possible types and issues into 1,552 clusters and issued a report for the DNC on the Negro vote in the North. It's thought that this report by Simulmatics Corporation in 1959 influenced the civil rights paragraphs that the Democratic Party added to its platform in advance of the convention. In 1964, a political scientist named Eugene Burdick so worried about Simulmatics Corporation and what this new data science meant for American democracy wrote a novel about it called The 480. He just, in it, he described a benign underworld in American politics of men who with no ill motive whatsoever but merely a desire to be good scientists were undoing the basic workings of our constitutional representative government. Burdick's dystopianism is vintage Cold War, the strange love and fear of the machine. But after 1960, the DNC essentially abandoned computer simulation. One reason may have been that LBJ wasn't as interested in the work of MIT scientists as Kennedy had been. And for decades after that, Republicans were far more likely to use computer-based polling tools than Democrats. In 1977, the RNC acquired its first mainframe computer. The DNC didn't get its own mainframe until the 1980s. One reason for this is that uh, the Republican Party has close ties to big business. Democratic technological advances awaited the personal computer. The RNC is to IBM as the DNC is to Apple. Then came the internet, which beginning with the so-called move-on effect favored Democrats, but as has been well demonstrated, has not favored democracy. To winnow the field of candidates to hold the main stage for the second GOP debate in September, CNN had intended to use 11 national polls conducted over the summer. But after Carly Fiorina's campaign complained that the method was unfair, CNN changed its formula. This decision had very little to do with American democracy or with American social science. It had to do with the practice of American journalism. So did a feature that CNN ran on its website during the debate, an ongoing instant poll it called The Pulse. No one tells me what to say Trump had insisted when he began his campaign. By September, on the defensive, he insisted that he had the will of the people behind him. If you look at the polls, he said, a lot of people like the way I talk. He kept his lead nearly till the end of October. Do we love these polls, he called out to a crowd in Iowa. Somebody said, you love polls. I said, that's only because I've been winning every single one of them. Two days later, when he'd lost his lead in Iowa to Ben Carson, he'd grown doubtful. I honestly think these polls are wrong. By the week of the third GOP debate, he'd fallen behind in a national poll. The thing with these polls are they're all so different, Trump said mournfully. It's not very scientific. It has never been very scientific, but it is getting worse. The sea of polls is deeper than ever before, and it is darker. Trump is a creature of that sea, but so are we. Turning the press into pollsters has made American political culture Trumpian. Frantic, volatile, short-sighted, sales-driven, and anti-democratic. A fast pulse, a fast pulse is not a sign of health. A fast pulse is a sign of distress. Thank you. See if this mic it is working. Um, question and answer time. We have uh, four mics set up: two on the ground floor and two up there. I can't see very well up there if someone is at that mic. Uh, so all, the rules are quite simple. All questioners must identify themselves. Uh, one brief 
question per person, not two or three. Um, no speeches. Uh, and questions end with a question mark. So please, up on the. Hi, Professor. My name is Ignacio. I'm a student at the college. Hey. Um, recently, Twitter actually just released a new function called polls where you can actually quickly vote between two choices and just state your opinion right there for millions of people to see. I was wondering what your thoughts were on what the future of polling is, especially with new limited Twitter 140 characters and the future of social media. Well, I'm far more curious about your answer to that question, but I do think the tradition, my, my guess, so historians, you know, unlike journalists, we. We, we have to swear an oath in our own blood when we get our PhD that we will never make a prediction because historians know that history is not a predictive science. It's not a science at all. It's a, it's a form of humanistic inquiry. So I, I, I can't give you, a, you know, I can't give you an answer as a professional historian. <laughs> as a citizen, I would say, you know, the, the traditional public opinion poll that has this model from the 1930s is, is being replaced by other forms of measurement of opinion. Um, that, that, that does seem inevitable. I, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people that do some of this work, this data science work that do use social media to measure public opinion. Um, it is absolutely the case that the people doing this work share two things. One, they think it's nifty, right? I mean, and it is nifty. It's like, that's kind of, that's a, that's a cool thing. Um, and they, they think it's good for democracy, right? I mean, I, I, there's, no, there's no question that people, people doing this work have, have, have good motives. Um, have they asked deep political, deep, deeper questions about the implications of these technologies for our democracy? No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, nor do they consider it their job to do so. Um, it, it, there are some tools that are, that there's, I, I spoke to this really interesting organization um, called CrowdPack. And what they do is actually try to turn public opinion polling on its head. The, the point of, of, of uh, it's, a, it's a startup in, in Palo Alto that, uh, uses data from a political, data gathered by a political scientist at Stanford to tell citizens what elected officials think and what candidates think and to offer that kind of, the, the read of social media, the read of campaign donations, the read of, of congressional roll calls and votes that allow a citizen to look at a candidate or look at an office holder up for re-election or educate herself about an issue using data mining tools. <laughs> Um, and, and the idea there is um, that you would, then, you would then have a kind of reciprocity of the measurement of public opinion. And so, you know, I, I asked these people, I said, okay, so, so you're, you're in your beta stage now developing these new tools and Twitter is developing these new tools and there are all these other new tools. So let's, let's imagine that, that uh, data scientists are able to perfect a perfect tool that can set aside any qualms about measurement and accuracy, that can instantly and accurately measure the opinions of the electorate or the opinions of your constituency. So let's say you and I are um, members of Congress and we're about to go in to vote on, on um, you know, the, the Shorenstein Act. And um, I really think it's an important piece of legislation. I, I've, I've been to a lot of hearings about it. I've read all the material. I really strongly am in favor of this legislation. I check my instant read of my constituents that's what are using their Twitter or whatever it's using. And I'm told that my constituency are, are, are um, overwhelmingly disapprove of this legislation and that they are all set up, because one of the things that CrowdPEC does, they're all set up to withdraw promised funds from my reelection campaign if I, if I vote in favor of this piece of legislation. So if, if, if I vote against my convictions but in line with my constituents as read by this, to, this technological tool, is that democracy? That's, I'm asking you because, yes, you're a student okay. of government. I'm a mere historian. Interesting. Um, I think it has severe consequences, especially because you can't assume that the electorate is as knowledgeable regarding these topics as the representative is. And you, especially with social media, it's extremely easy to just get a large amount of people to actually vote against the, the legislation so maybe you aren't representing the total population. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Here, please. Hello, my name is Catherine. I'm a graduate of the Harvard College. And my question is, um, I really appreciate your talk in highlighting the like corruptive influence of these polls, but do you think a way to fix that would be more regulation of the polls themselves or the organizations such as the DNC that are relying on these polls to start choosing candidates to talk on the debate stage? 
uh, I think that the way the debates, way way calling will be done for future debates is likely to change. These debates have been so controversial in so many different ways. So that does seem some, so there is some inevitable distress. There have been a number of complaints filed with the FCC in previous debate cycles where third party candidates were eliminated from participating in a debate, although usually that was not through simply uh, the, uh, an appeal to polls. Um, the argument was usually about fundraising or about media presence or presence in this state with a campaign office. Um, there was a kind of more holistic sense of how do you know if someone's campaign is legitimate enough for them to participate in a debate. Um, the narrowing of that down to the poll is, is a fairly new development and I think is a controversial one and is, is likely to be addressed. I don't know what the remedy for that is. Um, as for how to fix the broader problem with polls, I, I guess I'm less worried about conventional uh, telephone polling since I don't think it's likely to continue, but I am pretty gravely worried about some of these new tools because I don't think they, like, like most new technologies, we don't ask hard questions about what their implications are. Please. Um, so if you replace the word poll with the word voting, would you still have the same issues? So the great promise of public opinion polling and the argument that Gallup and Roper and others made in the 1930s was that polling was better than voting because polling would hear the voices of the unheard. And this is the great sort of democratic populism of the 1930s, right? You can think about so many features of 1930s cultural life where uh, hearing the voices of the voiceless was, you know, the, how the other half lives, this kind of documentary populism of 1930s photography. It has its analog in the, in the defense and, and, and argument on behalf of the polls. And political scientists will say the same thing about the survey, the social science survey, that, um, so Sidney Verba, the great political, Harvard political scientist, once gave just a beautiful, beautiful address about how the, the inequalities of voting, the, the, the problems with voting where um, people don't have enough information, there's kind of, there are kind of forces that suppress voting, there are voting rights issues historically that we're concerned about. The problems with voting that, that, that are endemic in our political process are actually not endemic to, to, to public opinion surveying, and therefore the public opinion survey is the great instrument of democracy. That claim is quite an inspiring one, and, I, and so just to sort of respond, I, I think that is, a, uh, that, is, that's, that is the great sort of soaring promise of this work, and I think the idealism that lies behind uh, many people who do it, both as political scientists or as pollsters, but that is contingent on the polls actually working. And what people will say now when you ask pollsters, how do you, what's the, how do you respond to the problem of the low response rate? They'll say, well, the, what we, the, the thing is, the people that are hard to get to answer a survey don't vote. So if we're, if we're trying to like, if, I, if I'm working for a candidate and I'm trying to tell my candidate what, 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 the, what his constituents think, and I have a hard time getting non-voters because they don't have cell phones and they don't answer their phones, it's not a problem because I'm, I'm still giving, I feel like I'm giving my, my client good information. But then the whole promise of the endeavor is completely compromised. Hi, uh, my name is Jackson. I'm a freshman at the college. Um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on press coverage as it relates to poll, polling results. Uh, like in terms of do, uh, does press coverage, is pre press coverage changed by the results of polls, or do you think that they disregard polls in terms of the coverage that they give different candidates? Um, thank you for coming. Uh, it's good of you to get out of your dorm and come over to the Kennedy School. Um, that's a gr that, is a, that is a great question. There is a body of scholarship about this. It's, it's, it's unfortunately a shifting target, so it's, a, it's, it's hard to know. I think we would all say intuitively that that, that, that is a, you know, there's this bandwagon, you know, the, the, when things like the band, the band, this is called bandwagon effect in one way or another. Um, and in the 30s when this was raised and critics of Gallup would say, you know, there's this bandwagon effect going on. People that are polling higher are getting more attention from, from the press and therefore they're, uh, pollsters would simply deny it. Um, like it was the, the single best thing to do was to just say that that effect does not exist. And, and Gallup would repeatedly say this, you go on lecture tours and repeatedly say the bandwagon effect does not exist. But political scientists seem to think it in fact, <laughs> in fact, 
does exist. So, so that is worrisome, but that isn't the pollster's responsibility. That's the press's responsibility. Please. Hi, thanks for speaking here. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm a student at the law school. Um, I spent four years working at Pew, actually, doing polls, and I agree with a lot of what you said about some of the negative effects. Um, but I also sort of see this as, as um, politics as sport and people, uh, I mean, the CNN debate getting 20 million people to kind of watch this sporting spectacle. So I wonder if, what you think about it. Um, if it's getting people to watch and people are interested in who's up, who's down in the polls, and they're actually going out and voting in record numbers, uh, isn't that a good thing for democracy? Well, that's a great that's a great question too, and I think that's a that's a debatable point. I guess one of the things that's interesting about our culture of political polling and political coverage based on polling is that it seems to I think most of us so natural as if it's always been this way. Think about the 19th century election. Um, in the 19th century, before the rise of the before the reform of the secret ballot, election day was a day to get drunk. So people didn't go to work; they went to the polls and they drank. And generally, in order to get to the, there, there was not an election day in the United States before 1896 when someone wasn't murdered at the polls. It was an extremely violent, raucous affair. It was a boatload of fun. I mean, that was fun. like election day. You read a council, it's like that was fun. One of my favorite stories though is this guy in Baltimore who's you know who's who's shot and beaten, whose brother's shot and he's attacked. The thing is because you had to bring your own ballot and ballots were colorful. So the point, like the Republican might have a blue ticket and the, and the Democrats might have a red ticket or they, they weren't aligned the way they are now. You could, you could tell how someone was gonna vote. So party operatives would go, um, these beefy guys, they would see you coming with a red ticket and they were, you know, they wanted you to vote with a blue ticket and they would just block you and they would beat you up. So it was very hard to get to the box where you had to deposit your ticket. So there was this whole thing called vest pocket voting. Like if you could fold your, your ballot up in tiny enough pieces and you could get into the vest of your pocket, you could try to get there without being beaten up by the thugs who were hired by the other party. So the, 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 the one, this one guy filed suit because he couldn't, he couldn't vote because he was so threatened and he was shot. There's, everybody's firing guns at these things. And, and the, the court decision, the ruling was that his right to vote was not interfered with because a man of ordinary courage was the legal definition of someone who should be able to vote. And then he, he didn't have enough courage because he was trying to hide his ballot. Um, so you might say, I'm sorry, but the turnout rate was very high. It was incredibly fun. Also, you could make a lot of money because people would pay you to vote and they would pay you to vote again and they would pay you to vote again. And you could sell your vote. And um, poor people loved to vote because it was very lucrative. It was hard to vote against your boss because your boss would often be there saying, I see you, you know, you go, go to this line. Um, it was a lot of fun. It, it was very high turnout. Was that right? Like, apparently the American people did not think that was right because we introduced the secret ballot instead. So I'm not so convinced that, that the 23 million record number of people that watched that debate are an indication of the health of our democracy. Thank you. I'm Craig Kelly, a mid-career from 2015 and a city councilor in Cambridge, and we just finished our own election and no one got shot or beat up or anything else on the way to the polls, which is good. But as a politician, the person that takes that information, we're desperate for polls. And, and I don't know where you differentiate between polls and surveys, but you got my doglet, I assume. I have no idea whether that was effective or not, and I would love to know. And how do I get that information about how you're gonna vote and what's gonna reach you that I can give you that would make you vote for me without doing some sort of survey or poll or online research or whatever that might be. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question and it's great for you to be here, Craig, my favorite Cambridge City Councilman. So uh, thanks for coming. Um, I, I, you know, this is the, the worst cop up, but historians often say, um, we don't solve problems, we problematize. <laughs> Which is not, which is, why do you get out of bed in the morning if you're gonna problematize, I, I often wonder. But I guess, you know, I, what I would ask you, of course you want that information, right? There were ways that that information was gained before we did public opinion polling. And I would, I would ask you whether you are so convinced that the polls that, that you rely on are as reliable as you suspect they are. But I would ask you, looking ahead to this technological shift from public opinion polling through calling people up at their houses to social media uh, data mining and other forms of data science and data analytics, whether you think there are questions to be raised about, however helpful it may be for you running your campaign, whether in the long run 
it may be bad for our political culture. Philip Orr, thank you. Tomorrow morning, uh, this discussion will continue. We have a, uh, a panel in the morning that will respond to Jill's remarks. Uh, Jill will be there to defend them. And uh, also on that panel, I'm going to moderate that panel. Uh, we have uh, CNN's uh, Candy Crowley is going to be on the panel. Gary Young is going to be on the panel. Uh, and we have a real live pollster, my friend Peter Hart, uh, <laughs> to defend the industry. So uh, it's upstairs. Uh, I think we're in. Taubman, right? Uh, it's the fifth floor of Taubman uh, Continental Breakfast at 8.30. Uh, so we'll feed you first, and, uh, and then we'll start the discussion at 9. And uh, thank you all for coming. It's been a delight. Thank you. And I, I'm remiss in not uh, thanking Gary Young and uh, Jill Lepore for a terrific evening. Thank you both. <laughs>